one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle. Yet the look should be timeless, and you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability They'll have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash MilkStreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash MilkStreet to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash MilkStreet. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Anissa Halou's new book, Feast, takes a global look at Islamic cooking, culture, and history and delivers recipes that you'll want to make at home as well, from simple flatbreads to kofta, kibbeh, lentil soup, parsley salads, and rice puddings. I once was told by a taxi driver in Syria that the reason why people like to eat camel is that the camel is supposedly a monogamous animal, and it's virtuous to eat it. I personally don't really believe in that theory, but it's a kind of a, it's a fun theory. Before we get to the foods of the Islamic world, I chat with filmmaker Andrew Ray. In his YouTube show, Binging with Babish, Ray demonstrates how to make dishes from movies and TV shows, including Goodfellas, Big Night, and Seinfeld. In one video, Ray recreates Dothraki blood pie from HBO's Game of Thrones. First, he sautés some pork fat and Spanish onion, 
Then for the blood, he uses real pig blood and teaches viewers how to cook with it. Andrew, how are you? Pretty good. How you doing, Chris? Good. So here's my question. You got 3 million uh, YouTube channel followers, probably 2.99 more million than I have. Um, <laughs> and I just watched, I watched a whole bunch of your, your videos. And, you know, Game of Thrones, you have wild boar meat, pigeon, rabbit. Uh, this is a very complicated recipe, you know, far more complicated, I think, than anything I've ever made. And you have 3 million subscribers. And, and the usual rule of thumb is the more entertaining and lighter and less content heavy the, the food video, the more people watch it. In your case, it seems to be the reverse. Uh, so I, I, I find that fascinating. So how does that work? Well, I, I'm, I'm very lucky to have an audience that um, uh, has, has been sort of very loyal and stuck with me as my channel has grown. Um, and I've just tried to be as uncompromising as possible about just the way that I present the content. Uh, there is a pop culture element, like, you know, Game of Thrones, right. huge title and, and, and uh, happily that, uh, that garnered a large audience. But once I get them in there, I want to sit them down and show them some proper technique. So uh, th- th- that, that was probably one of the very few recipes that I didn't uh, steal directly from you, Chris. <laughs> well, well at, least, at least you're kind enough, I noticed, to like, give attribution, which is nice. Um, but I, I've never done Dothraki blood pie. So, you yeah, know, I mean, you, first. yeah, you've gone places I, I'll never go. Um, there's this great quote uh, from you. I don't know where I found it. It says, patrons at the Wizarding World of Harry Potter in Orlando reportedly cried upon taking their first sip of butterbeer. <laughs> you've hooked yourself to the wagon of movies. And so food and movies, obviously, you understand there's a deep connection and people react to that. Um, how did you f- first get onto that notion and, and how deep do you think it is? I think it's very deep. Um, food from movies and television is one of the palpable, tangible ways that you can sort of experience your favorite movie or TV show firsthand, that you can experience what your favorite characters are experiencing. And it all started from an episode of Parks and Rec where they had a burger cook-off. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that episode where Ron and Chris have a burger cook-off to see if a turkey burger can beat a beef burger. And did it? Um, it, it I, I, honestly, no. I, uh, uh, Chris's burger took probably like six hours to make, I think, where there was a Telegio <laughs> cheese crisp and there was a papaya chutney and there was a black truffle aioli and turkey burgers ground by hand and... and um, it was delicious, but then you take one bite of a beef burger and right. it's, there's, yeah. there's no, you can dress it up all you like. There's no comparison. So some of these things are obvious. When Harry met Sally, you do homemade pastrami, gelato for Roman holiday. That makes sense. Uh, but some of these, I just like to I just have you explain. Inglorious Bastards, a movie I did like very much. You pick up strudel. What scene was that in? I don't remember that. Well, it was a very menacing scene with, um, I believe his name is Hans Landa, uh, Christoph Waltz's character. And he's he's uh, toying with this girl that he knows is a, a refugee in France. And um, he uh, uh, orders this strudel. And, and it's, it's, it's just the most murderous, terrifying little brunch that you could ever imagine. At the same time, uh, you want to try this strudel. It's, just, despite it being such a scary scene and despite him putting a cigarette out in, in it at the end, I got lots and lots of requests for it. And uh, it's, it's a very interesting process by which you make that strudel. So, so the, the secret here, if I may, is you start with fiction and you take something out of fiction and make it real. Uh, you bring it to life so people can actually experience it secondhand. But you can experience something you just saw on the big screen. Now you can see it on the little screen. Yeah, it's one of those rare ways in which we're able to actually manifest something from our favorite fiction. Let's assume Julia Child were was still with us and doing her show and doing it pretty much the way she always did it. Do you think Julia would still resonate, forgetting about the nature of the recipes, whether they're French or whatever, but you think her persona and her, her presentation is something that would still uh, ring a bell with people or not? Absolutely. Those are the biggest and most important factors in making a show. People need to like you and feel how passionate you are about something. I I always say the same thing to new YouTubers, which is um, 
find something that you love so much that you have to yell at other people right. about it. Like just, just find something that drives you crazy and share it with the world. And that's exactly what Julia did. Yeah. She loved cooking. And, uh, I think, I mean, nostalgia factor aside, even if she was brand new face on the scene and no one had ever heard of her before with her voice and her demeanor and, and, uh, and her, her presence, I, I think that she would crush. Absolutely. Yeah, I think I think you hit the nail on the head. I think her enthusiasm for the topic was limitless and therefore it was infectious. And so even if you had no interest in cooking, you just had to go along for the ride with her because she, she was all in. And she yeah. she brought you in with her, I think. Absolutely. So Andrew, thank you so much and, and best of luck. Thank you, Chris. Have a good one. That was Andrew Ray. His YouTube channel is Binging with Babish, and his new book is entitled Eat What You Watch, a cookbook for movie lovers. Mill Street Radio is also available as a podcast. You can subscribe and listen whenever you want. New shows go up every Friday on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Spotify. It's time to take a few of your calls with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101, also the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. Sarah, how are you? I'm good, Chris, and I'm excited to take some calls. You're always excited to take calls. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Patricia. Hi, Patricia. Where are you calling from? Spokane, Washington. Nice. How can we help you today? Most of the turkeys that I find in my supermarket are enhanced with some sort of solution of right. turkey broth and saline, flavor enhancers. And I know that this plumps up the bird, and it helps it to keep it from drying out. But my question to you is, if I wanted to brine my turkey, as they show on a lot of cooking programs, will the additional soaking cause the meat to have a weird texture. Yeah, you can't brine an enhanced bird. It's already been essentially It's already brined. been brined. Yeah, it's a that's what that's all about. And the key point is it's saline. It's got salt in it. And that when you roast a turkey that's been brined or injected, it helps the meat hold on to liquid as it cooks. So there's less okay. liquid loss. And so if you brine an enhanced turkey, it'll be a disaster. What I would do instead is get a fresh turkey that has had no, you know, enhancement, no nothing added to it, and brine it yourself. Well, sure. I'm going to change my mind about brining. Well, I mean, I, I've been in favor of brining for a very long time. It's a great way to cook a turkey. I'm now getting to the point where I'm just not going to worry about it. So I'm going to cook a turkey like at 300 degrees and cook it long and slow. You know what? It's going to be fine. And then I make great gravy. And then if it's a little dry, you know, I'm not going to worry about it. Isn't that funny how you, you I just come don't around. care anymore. I mean, or, or you can buy a kosher turkey if you can find Which one. Which is already, a kosher turkey's already been, been pre-salted. The only problem with brining is you get a, a very moist, I think overly moist texture. It's a little wet, well, which I don't That's know. why I like the quote-unquote dry brining where you just put yes. the salt on it. And I use, ready, one of my tricks? I use a grapefruit spoon turned upside down to get under the skin between the skin mm. and the meat because you don't want to tear the skin and then right. you can get in there and were, then you put the kosher salt on it. And were you born with a grapefruit spoon in your mouth? <laughs> <laughs> no. I just wanted a grapefruit spoon. No, but I use it for all sorts of things, not what it's supposed to be. That's a good for. idea. Yeah. I mean, brining's great, but Who's got room for a 20-pound bird in the refrigerator the day before Thanksgiving? Not me. Nobody. I think just low temperature, long and slow. Or buy an enhanced bird and you don't have no, to No, don't buy it. an enhanced bird. Okay. I'm just Ever. saying. So, anyway. <laughs> okay. So that's how we feel about enhanced turkeys. In Thanks for calling, Patricia. Thank you. Okay. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Lucy calling from Beverly, Massachusetts. Oh, hi, Lucy. How can we help you today? Uh, I have a question about cornstarch. So I like to make some simple one-pot sort of stir-fries, um, and the recipes often call for making a slurry out of soy sauce and teriyaki sauce and some spices and cornstarch. Right. And the pictures always show this gorgeous, thick, clinging, glossy sauce. And then I make the recipe, and it turns out that the sauce is watery and cloudy, and it doesn't cling, and it goes to the bottom of the pan. Can you give me any tips? Well, first of all, when people take pictures for cookbooks or magazines, you know, they may There's like 500 do it people times. there yeah, rearranging so, the mushroom. So in the what corner. it looks like in the picture, uh, I mean, we, we don't use 
fake stuff when we do it, but uh, other people do sometimes. Well, cornstarch is a little tricky. You know, flour contains starch, but also contains mm-hmm. proteins. So it's a more stable thickener, but it takes more time and effort. And cornstarch got more of a flavor. And cornstarch is a quickie way of getting thickening, but it does have to come up to at least, what, 195, actually. Yeah, something. Yeah. Are you getting it hot enough when you're whisking it in? I'm boiling the mixture on the stovetop. It's, it's bubbling, but it never goes anywhere after that. So I'm not sure if I'm getting it hot enough is the answer. Well, here's another thing. So when you mix the cornstarch with all these other things, uh, you said soy yep. sauce and whatever else, and and so that's all ready until the last moment. You add it at the last moment usually, correct? Okay. So do you remix it before you put it in? I do. I give it a whisk and then I dump it in the pot. Right, because it clumps. You know, it will dissolve and then it will clump out in that soy sauce mixture. And then you have to whisk it well again so it's completely dissolved again. And then you throw it in and you bring it up to a very high heat. I mean, you can't, should really boil it. Boiling is 212. And it should be fine. Well, is this, are you using a skillet or a wok? This is a stir fry, right? Yeah, this is a stir fry. I'm using a skillet. Here's another thought. Do you stir it and stir it and stir it and stir it? I don't. Usually I'm running around trying to, like, get the kids eating, and and so I'm not actually stirring it while it's, it's boiling away. Well, and how long do you boil it? <laughs> not very long. Well, actually... You're doing everything right. You're doing everything right. Cornstarch, if you overstir it, can break. Yeah, and if you overcook and it, it can break. And if you overcook it, it can break. break. Meaning it gets watery again. I think maybe you're cooking it too long. My guess is when you put that in with a stir-fry at the end, it's 15 seconds, and then you're done, oh, and it comes, out, it comes out of the skillet. So yeah. it sounds like you're letting it sit in there for two or three minutes maybe. Yep, yep, yeah. yep, I am. <laughs> That's the problem. And then if you come back and stir it, you're doing a double whammy. Also, the general rule is for every cup of liquid, you want a tablespoon of cornstarch. I'm assuming you're following a recipe. I am, yes. Yeah. I think the problem is kids and stir fries. Yeah. I mean, I have that same problem. (laughs) They just don't go very well. They don't go well together because you can't be doing something when you're doing a stir fry. So focus on that and within 15 or 20 seconds, get it in the pan. Yeah. Stand by the stove when you do that. Add that, the last thing, because that is generally what you add the last. Stand by your stove. All right. Uh, Yes. I would definitely pay attention because it sounds like it's just overcooking. Yeah. Breaking. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your tips. Yeah. I will try the next cook. Thank All you, right. Lucy. Take care. Have a good one. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you have a culinary question, give us a ring anytime at 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at millstreetradio.com. Welcome to Mill Street. Who's calling? I'm Ralph. I'm from Western North Carolina. How can we help you? I recently made the stovetop chocolate cake from the Milk Street uh, literature. It was a huge hit, not only because of the deep chocolate flavor, and uh, I went ahead and spent the big bucks and bought Dutch processed cocoa, but because of the phenomenal texture, cake-like yet moist, not wet. Because it was such a success, I wanted to try other flavors. Just as a joke, almost, I tried a supermarket box cake mix prepared according to package directions. <laughs> if you remember the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man from Ghostbusters, uh-huh. that's about what I got. <laughs> it was impossible to frost and truly had the texture of a big marshmallow. Forget that. How can I repurpose that dough to produce other flavors like maybe a rum cake with dried fruits and nuts or a lemon cake with lemon zest and extract? Can I remove the chocolate and try other flavors? If you take the cocoa powder out, you'll have to replace it with flour to get the right texture. So I don't uh, remember how much cocoa powder is in that cake. I've made it a few times, too. Uh, and we should just say for listeners, it's a cake that's essentially steamed. You put it in a big Dutch oven on a rack and cover it, and essentially it's a steamed chocolate cake. So, And it has a very smooth, satiny kind of texture, which is great. I would replace cocoa powder with flour, and then I think you'd be okay. Yeah, and then just add the other flavorings. All right. I'd love to see a lemon version. So you put in lemon zest and maybe what liquid is in it? Well, it's uh, just sour cream and eggs, and I might put some lemon extract along with the lemon zest. 
I don't know about lemon. Sarah just made that upset think, chipmunk face. I don't know about okay. lemon extract. It's, it's kind of nasty. I'd go more with grated lemon zest and maybe a little bit of lemon juice. But yeah. what would the lemon juice replace? What liquid could it? Cause well, you're not going to have enough of it. To so a couple a tablespoons would be yeah, okay? A tablespoon would be fine. Yeah. It's the zest that's going to give you the flavor anyway. But yeah, just replace the, the cocoa powder with flour. I think it would be okay. Oh, and let us know how it goes and what variations you come up with. It's a fabulous texture. I just love the cake. It's, it was a huge hit. Well, it's also, you don't have to turn the oven on, so it's kind of cool. Yeah, right. Yeah. Ralph, uh, give that a shot. Let us know. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so yeah. much. You're listening to Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Up next, my interview with Anissa Lou, author of Feast, Food of the Islamic World. That's coming up right after this break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, Crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um like lemon meringue pie, that would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week, you deserve this pizza, you deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer, it's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavor of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. 
This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Anissa Halou first exposed me to a new world of cooking with her 1998 book, Mediterranean Street Food. In her latest book, Feast, Halou guides readers through recipes and stories from all over the Islamic world, recipes that share a common heritage, but that are actually quite different region to region, even village to village. Anissa, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, Chris. How are you? I'm good. Uh, you were born... Uh, 1952 in Beirut and lived there for 21 years. Beirut, everyone talks about as sort of the garden of the Middle East. Could you just tell us a little bit about what it was like to grow up there? Well, it was quite wonderful because, first of all, Beirut is by the sea, and um, it's a very easy city, very dolce vita. Everything is very, like, close by. We lived very near the sea and very near the, you know, Bond Street of Beirut, where all the cinemas were, the cafes, everything. But as a kid, it was, um, there was a very nice quality to it from the food point of view, because, well, my mother was a great cook, but everything came to us. Like there were carts with food, you know, vegetables, fruit, whatever. And my mother would hang out the window and ask the vendor, you know, what was in season, what was in good quality, whatever, that he would weigh and bring it up to us. And then she would pay him. The fishmongers would come to us with very fresh fish. The milk guy, you know, would come with his milk pails, the special fruit like mulberries, figs, everything came to the door. And it was just such a kind of lovely way of life in a, in a capital city, but very laid back. So your new book, Feast, Food of the Islamic World, can we just start with a very short, concise sort of history of Islam from Medina to Damascus? I mean, just, just very quickly give us a history lesson. Well, Islam was born, as it were, in um, Mecca in the 7th century, and when the Prophet Muhammad had his first revelations. And it was very difficult for him at the beginning to convert people. In fact, his tribe were very anti him, so he had to flee to another city. But soon after his death, they, I mean, he expanded you know, and he, he he got more followers. And actually, I think by the time he died, his tribe, he had reconciled with his tribe. I can't really remember now. But after he died, his um, Rashidun, his, his followers, started setting up wonderful uh, dynasties. And the first one was in Damascus. The, the Umayyad, and the second one with its seat in Baghdad. And from then on, they, like, expanded their empires from east to west quite considerably and established serious civilizations because at the beginning, you know, their food, their way of life and everything was very simple because they were Bedouins in, in the desert, I mean, oasis, but in the desert. But then when, when the first dynasty set up, you know, the seat was in Damascus. It was, it became, it was quite magnificent. And then the Abbasids were, you know, amongst the most magnificent, then the Ottomans. I mean, throughout the centuries, they expanded and had a huge civilization, culture, I mean, very serious, you know, with uh, inventions and philosophy and, you know, everything, art, beautiful art. So, you know, today people look at Islam and Muslims in a kind of, you know, negative way. And and even they think that they're like backwards and it's not, you know, kind of fanatical because they see it through the prism of terrorism, which is like, you know, the way Islam is being presented these days. And I wanted to do something to kind of counteract this negative view of a religion that is, you know, the third main religion in the world of uh, 1.8 billion people in very diverse and with a huge history, very important history of civilization and culture. 
Yeah, and the book certainly shows that. It, what it also shows is the connections between different places, which is really interesting. Uh, flatbreads, breads in general. Well, one of the great things about this book is that the depth of research and recipes, I've seen a lot of books covering similar topics, but none that really has the, the breadth this one does. Could you just give us, everyone knows three or four of the obvious flatbreads. Could you just talk to us about the range of flatbreads throughout the Islamic world? Because there are a lot of things in there I'd never seen before. You know, you would think that flatbread is very simple, but you have one particular category, which is the multi-layered breads, which is extraordinary because it it combines technique with also like wonderful flavors and textures. And you find multi-layered breads almost everywhere. And in some cases, the technique is by flapping the dough around and then folding it and, and you know, cooking it over a hot plate. And in others, you know, you roll it into a cylinder, then twist it, and and then you end up with this multi-layered effect. Then you have, you know, a, a bread like the Yemeni bread, Bintasan, where disks of dough are, are layered one on top of the other to have a kind of like a bread cake, basically. I mean, in, in the West, you don't really get to see much of what goes on in a bakery because it's in, at the back. And Whereas in the Middle East, in North Africa, and even in Indonesia, in India and in Pakistan, you see it all being made in front of you. And you can spend hours watching these bakers. Um, let's talk about roasting camels. Uh, you say that uh, at, a, <laughs> at a wealthy wedding, they might roast a whole baby camel. You have a recipe for roasting a camel hump. <laughs> so... Camels as food. The camel is an essential animal for the Bedouins because it's, um, you know, a beast of burden. It survives in the desert because it it can go long distances without, you know, needing um, water. But at the same time, it's a very precious animal. I once was told by a taxi driver, I think, in in Syria, or maybe the butcher, a a camel butcher in Syria, that the reason why people like to eat camel is that the camel is supposedly a monogamous animal, and it's virtuous to eat it. I personally Hmm. don't really believe in that theory, but it's a kind of, it's a fun theory. It's an expensive animal to buy in in the gulf you if you have a special occasion or a wedding or whatever you would buy the whole animal a baby one because they're much nicer to eat than when they're old because the, then the meat becomes too tough and the first time i ever ate camel was actually in syria and when i asked the guy the butcher to um, to to make me kebabs, he looked at me and he said, "No, no, you don't want pieces. You want it." And and it's confusing because in Syria, kebab means minced meat, and in Lebanon, kebab means you know like pieces of meat on a skewer. And the I just I mean I found out he was a camel butcher because I nearly bumped into the head hanging outside his shop. I mean you know kind of severed head, you know, still dripping blood. It was quite gruesome. Anyway, it was very interesting. And what is it? Is Can you describe the taste and texture of camel meat? It's a bit tough. I mean, even for the baby camel, it would be a little bit stringy and maybe a touch gamier than, than beef or lamb. For me, it's like a, eating some a meat that is a cross between lamb and beef. It's not as rich and as moist as lamb, and it's not as sort of dense as beef. But the most important thing is that it's a, it's a relatively tough meat. Uh, let's talk about falafel. Uh, you say it was originally from Egypt. They used a meat grinder with a fine attachment to make them very fluffy instead of pasty. How come most of the falafel I get here is heavy? I mean, the, the idea of a fluffy chickpea falafel sounds wonderful. Um, I think it's the way that it's made and the temperature of the oil. But basically, falafel are made with raw pulses or legumes, as you say in America. So some people make them with only chickpeas. Other people make them with only fava beans and others make it with a mixture depending and the percentage depends on the home cook. If you're whizzing the raw pulses in in a food processor, 
you get a mushy paste that's very diff difficult to kind of fluff up and as you fry it. Whereas if you grind it, you get these tiny little pellets of legumes that don't actually, they don't, the cohesion of the paste is not the same. So as they fry, and also people add baking soda to the mixture just before frying so that they puff up a little bit. So as the falafel fries, instead of having a dense like paste that doesn't move and, you know, puffs up a little bit, but not that much, you have this kind of slight eruption in the hot mm. oil and it's very fluffy inside. There is a restaurant here in London that makes them to perfection and I go and eat them there. Uh, Lebanese sweet cheese pie. Mm. Um, could you talk about that? Delicious breakfast. <laughs> now, you're just going to have a few moments of just just thinking about eating it for breakfast, and then we'll move on. It's actually one of my favorite breakfasts. You have two versions of making it. First, the, the two essential elements are the hair pastry. I call it hair pastry because it's basically a batter that's dropped on a hot plate in very, very, very thin strands and then picked up and then layered and then there's cheese underneath and baked. And it's rubbed with butter. There's a lot of butter. That's the Palestinian version or Nabulsi version. And then you have the Lebanese version where that hair pastry is slightly toasted um, with butter. And then I learned after the book that actually now they use food processors. In the old days, they used to do it by hand and it's very difficult to break it by hand to get a sort of semolina. Um, but one of the most famous sweet, sweet makers in Lebanon explained to me that now they grind it in a, in a food processor. So you have like a coarse flour, which is made out of this hair pastry, and you make a layer, bake it first, and then you add the cheese and you bake it, and then you turn it over and you pour a huge amount of syrup on it. And if you want to have it as a breakfast, you stuff it in a kind of sesame galette, and you eat it at a thousand calories a bite, or you can eat it, you know, as a just a hot pie, you know, as a dessert and or a snack, sweet snack. And it's it's one of the great, great, great sweets of the Middle East, I have to say. Where does Beirut stand today, uh, and where do you think it's headed? Um, it's a very interesting city. It's incredibly badly managed almost unlivable from the point of view that the traffic is awful. It's kind of lawless, you know, from the point of view that you can run a red light, nobody's going to stop you. But then there is a wonderful life. There, there is, people are totally resilient. Whatever happens from the civil war to the bombs to the, the uncertainty, basically, or lack of government, people continue, not only do they continue, but there's a huge section of the population who are very creative. And of course, the food scene is very interesting. Although, to be honest, if I want to eat really good Lebanese food, I would not try, I would not eat it in Beirut, but in the mountains. I would go outside of Beirut to have it. And also, it's completely destroyed as a city. In the 30s, in the 20s, in the 30s, it was a beautiful city with Ottoman houses overlooking the sea, um, gardens, greenery, beautiful, and, and a very vibrant sort of town center where you had food markets, clothes markets, all kinds of different markets. The future is terribly uncertain as far as I'm concerned, because until they resolve their problems and the lack of government oversight. I mean, I don't see it heading in, in the right direction or in a good direction. But this said, it has survived the civil war. It has recovered from the civil war. It is, it is a great city to visit. I, I, every time I go back, I love it. Anissa, thank you so much. Uh, your book, Feast, Food of the Islamic World, is fabulous. Uh, it's really, it, it's nice to see a book that really brings all the pieces together with recipes I haven't seen before. Really well done and well represented. So uh, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. That was chef and author Anissa Halou. Her latest book is entitled Feast, Food of the Islamic World. 
Not too long ago, I flew to Beirut and spent a couple of days cooking with Anissa and her mother. Fresh sitar salad for breakfast, folded flatbreads filled with cheese, lentils and rice with fried onions, bulgur with rich tomato essence, grilled kofta, fatouche, tabbouleh, chickpeas, and every possible combination. Beirut proves that happiness is not just about politics, the economy, or money. Maybe happiness is as simple as a good breakfast. It's time to chat with Catherine Smart about this week's recipe, Indian Spiced Butternut Squash Soup. Catherine, how are you? I'm great. How are you? Well, it's that time of year we drag out the old butternut squash soup recipe, among others, um, that we've kept downstairs <laughs> all the rest of the year in the basement. Uh, and it's a good recipe, but it's kind of bland, and it's kind of it's one of those things where you want to play with it and add other flavors. So this is Mill Street. We like to play with things and add flavors. So what are we going to do to butternut squash soup? Yes, Chris, we're going to dust off the old recipe and freshen it up a bit. Um, and in order to do that, we are going to bloom some spices. We have coriander and cumin and ginger. We're going to bloom them in oil. And what that is is just adding your dry spices to a hot fat. So we're going to use oil. You can, you know, that same technique is often used in butter to make tarka, um, an Indian condiment. But we're going to bloom the spices in oil and then incorporate that into a pretty traditional butternut squash soup. What's the basic method here? So to start off, we're going to saute the squash with some carrots and onion in olive oil. And once those are a little bit brown, we're going to add that ginger, coriander, cumin, and cayenne. And that's where the blooming really comes into play. So everything's going into the same pot with oil, and then the spices are added along with everything else, not separately. Right, and then we add the rest of the liquid in. And generally that liquid might be stock, but we decided to just use water. We wanted to keep the flavors really clean and bright. We didn't want to muddy them at all. And then everything is combined to make that classic smooth, kind of rich soup. But we wanted some texture, so we actually add some toasted pumpkin seeds, or they're known as pepitas. And for a final touch, we add just a dollop of yogurt. But you have to be careful, Chris, and you don't want to reheat the soup once you have that yogurt, because we don't want it to curdle. A little note of caution. <laughs> right. You have to be very careful. So this is really an Indian spiced butternut squash soup, right? It is. With the pepitas, with the pumpkin seeds, and a little bit of yogurt at the end. So we've taken it from boring to being rather grand. Catherine, thank you. Thanks, Chris. You can get this recipe for Indian spiced butternut squash soup with yogurt at 177milkstreet.com. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up next, J. Kenji Lopez-Alt has been experimenting in the kitchen again. He explains the best technique for achieving extra crispy turkey skin. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, Sarah Malt and I will be answering a few more of your culinary questions. Sarah, let's take a few more calls. Let's do it. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Galen from Lebanon, New Hampshire. So how can we help you? I love to bake, and I was uh, making a cake a couple weeks ago. It's a flourless chocolate torte. Really simple recipe. I think maybe five ingredients. And I'd melted the chocolate and the butter and the sugar all together. And it said to beat the eggs in, but one at a time. And yep. it made me think of all the times I've seen that in a recipe, as well as seen baking recipes where it says just beat all three eggs in, say. So this called for six eggs beaten in one at a time. And I was just wondering, why is that? Well... I had the same question many years ago, uh, back in, I don't know, 15 years ago. And I agree with you. I'm going like, this is stupid. I'll just dump them in. And then I ran into, uh, I ran into a woman who wrote a bunch of books on cakes. In her books, I think she'd say add an egg and beat it for like a minute or more. And I went back and did it. And it made a big difference. You get a more stable foam. You get more air incorporation. Aeration, I was going to say the emulsification of the batter, you get a really solid, stable foam out of it. So I would say absolutely one at a time. And don't do it for like eight seconds. I would do it for at least 20 seconds, maybe 30 seconds for each egg. And I think you get a better, a more dependable batter. I mean, cakes, you know, we all have had problems with cakes that don't rise evenly or they collapse in the middle. This, I think, gives you a better rise and a more consistent rise. My I mean, guess is there's no leavener in this cake, right, Galen? Exactly. It's so a, it's so the eggs are the leavener. The right. These eggs are the oh, leavener. Oh, okay. Yeah. Let me guess. Is it like Renta Sabah? Is it almonds, ground almonds and sugar and chocolate and eggs? Something like that? Essentially, yes. You melt about six ounces of chocolate and you add its uh, hot water with sugar mixed in to make a sugar water. You combine those with butter. And then after that, you incorporate your eggs and a pinch of salt and some milk. And that's it. And when it comes out of the oven, does it collapse a little bit on the top? It does. A tiny little bit into the center. Yeah, well, that's supposed to. Would that be a result of mixing all at once? That's why they call it, you know, fallen chocolate cake or... Yeah, because the eggs, when the eggs get in the hot oven, they rise up and then they, you know, fall after they come out. It's just like a souffle. No, that's fine. But in a smaller version. But, but try that. I think you get more consistent results. Yeah. I hate it when you have to do it the right way. But yeah, well, this in is baking, the case you, you really do. You do. Baking really, you have to do all the these right little way. things matter because it's much more of a science. I mean, it's all about science. Absolutely. All right, Galen. Okay. Thanks for calling. Thank you so much yeah. for your help. I really appreciate nice it. Nice to talk to you. You as well. Take care. You're listening to Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you have a cooking question or concern, please don't be shy. Give us a call, 855-426-9843, 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MillStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Mill Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Eric from Louisville, Kentucky. How are you? I'm doing just fine, thanks. Good. How can we help you? Well, first of all, just want to say I'm a big fan of all things Milk Street. Thanks, Eric. Yeah. I work remotely out of a home office, 
My wife works in a normal office out of the house, but we do both love to cook in the evenings. I can get little things done throughout the day around the house when I'm able to squeeze in five or ten minute breaks here and there. So on days when I do cook dinner, I really like to take care of the meal prep when I can earlier in the day. But how soon is too soon? Uh, like, obviously, you wouldn't want to cut a banana or an apple, but I'm thinking of things like onions, peppers, mushrooms, zucchini. You know, are these okay? And then, additionally, what about meat products? I can't see any downside in anything you just said. The one thing that comes to mind is tomatoes because they don't like to be refrigerated if you're dealing with fresh tomatoes. You have to refrigerate them after you cut them, you know, although I don't know if you're going to cook them six hours later if they, you know, get into trouble on the counter. Can I just say a word about room temperature now? Yeah. A public disservice announcement. Oh, dear. Well, Are we going to get in trouble? (laughs) No, I just think this American obsession with everything being refrigerated all the time I mean, you can leave meat out a couple hours before you cook it. It's not going to be the end of the Two world. Two hours is the rule from yeah, the government. Yeah, but if it's stew meat, I'll risk it. Onions and garlic do not have to be necessarily refrigerated for a long time. I think the one thing you do want to do is cover uh, right on the surface with so plastic wrap where you don't get oxidation. Yeah, that too. Some things like radishes, potatoes you put in water, of course, carrots, store them in cold water. Or I just put a damp paper towel on top. That works. Not the potatoes. Potatoes you have to put in water. I think meat you could easily cut up and put in the fridge. Onions, garlic, no problem. Some of those other vegetables in water. Apples, not. I tend not to chop herbs until I use them. I I find they get gnarly and they get a little wet. Yeah, They start to turn. The texture gets bad. tomatoes, how do you feel about tomatoes? I would never leave a tomato in the fridge even before I cut it. Well, no, of course not. But I'm saying after you cut it. Why would I have to put it in the fridge? Okay, so we just leave it on the counter (laughs) then. Yeah. Okay, Absolutely. I'm a counter guy. I guess we got that here now, didn't we? (laughs) Well, I mean, look, the French, you know, used to leave their eggs on the counter. They never refrigerated them. You know that. Oh, gosh, yes. Okay, so is there anything we've left out? Not that I can think of. So then my next question would be for something like an onion or something that's okay to be in the refrigerator. What's to stop me from cutting up, you know, five or six onions on a Monday to be used for the rest of the week? I think what's going to happen is over time they're going to lose their crunch. They're going to start releasing water. I don't think they're going to have the same flavor. I don't really know. It's a good question. I'm sort of on the fence about that one. The only other thing I'm thinking about is you put that stuff in your fridge, your fridge is going to start smelling like onions and garlic, and you don't really want want your apples and peaches to smell like onions. I'd say two days ahead of time is fine. If you're going to cook with it in a soup or a stew, it doesn't really matter. If you're going to dice an onion and use it uh, it raw, for example, in a salad or with some grains or parsley or something, then you wouldn't want to do it ahead of time. Oh, that's a great tip. Yeah. Okay. I think I'll just okay. stick with same day prep. Same day's fine. Thank you so much. Eric, okay. Take care. Thanks Bye. for calling. Okay. Bye bye. You know, you have really adamant, serious cooks. Oh, I thought you'd say personal problems. <laughs> this is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Here is this week's Milk Street Basic. You know, when it comes to spinach, kale, and chard, there's a lot of prep, and that's why sometimes people don't make them. But the French really do have a better idea. They blanch these greens ahead of time, they squeeze them dry, and keep them at the ready. In fact, at French markets, you can actually buy balls of blanched greens ready to finish at home with a quick turn in a skillet or drizzle of vinaigrette. So how do you do this at home? Well, start by cleaning and stemming the greens, then blanch in boiling water. That would be four quarts of water seasoned with two tablespoons kosher salt, until just tender. Then drain and cool quickly in cold running water. Then using your hands, squeeze dry and gather into a ball. The greens will be good for up to four days stored in an airtight container. For more culinary inspiration, please go to 177milkstreet.com. Next up, science writer J. Kenji Lopez-Alt has the answer to a better Thanksgiving turkey. Kenji, how are you? I'm doing good. How are you? Pretty good. Thanksgiving is upon us, and uh, you and I have <laughs> we've done dozens of turkeys between us, probably. Right. But maybe there's something new. So do you have something new for us this Thanksgiving? Well, not necessarily new, but going back to a topic that I know a lot of people care about. So I'm one of these people that loves roast turkey, even the white meat, and a lot of people don't. But I think everybody wants crispy turkey skin. Like, certainly in my family, that's 
what happens. People go into the kitchen after the turkey's done and pick off all the skin, usually before it even gets to the table. So I thought we could talk a little bit about turkey skin and what makes it crispy and what makes it not crispy. My answer is just get rid of the skin and eat the meat. (laughs) But you're right. Almost everybody else in my household is obsessed with the skin. So how do you do it? When your turkey skin or your chicken skin is crisping up, um, or even pork skin, there's a few things going on. I mean, as we know, there's a lot of fat in skin, and that fat kind of all has to render out if you don't want it to be kind of greasy and soggy and fatty tasting. But there's also a ton of connective tissue in turkey skin. You know, if you take skin off a piece of chicken or a piece of turkey um, and you try and pull on it, it's pretty elastic. And as you know from braising, say, you know, short ribs, pork shoulder, anything like that, connective tissue takes a long time to break down. And so for turkey skin and chicken skin, your goals are sort of threefold, to render the fat so that the fat's not greasy, to dehydrate it and brown it, and then finally to break down that connective tissue. Um, And if you're missing sort of any of those elements, you're going to run into problems. Your skin might be tough or it might be um, soggy or fatty. So those are your three goals. One technique that I've seen and I've even recommended in the past is taking your chicken or your turkey, um, salting it, and then letting it sit overnight in the fridge either loosely covered or sometimes even uncovered. A couple of years ago when I was testing turkeys for Thanksgiving, I thought, all right, well, what if we like sort of take this to the extreme and let the turkey completely dry out before we roast it? So we'll completely get rid of that dehydrating step. So now all we have to focus on is the browning and fat rendering and the connective tissue breakdown. So I tried it and I roasted the turkey and it came out brown and beautiful and not fatty, but the skin was like plastic. It wasn't crunchy at all. It was just tough. You left it in the refrigerator for a longer amount of time? Yeah, I left it three days uncovered in the refrigerator. So bad idea to let it go uncovered for up to three days. But what you certainly don't want to do is take it out of that cryovac bag and just season it and throw it straight in the oven because the skin is going to be soaking wet. It's like it's been, you know, sitting in a bathtub. So you definitely do want to let it dehydrate at least overnight in the fridge. And then from there, there's a few different techniques you can use. You know, you can roast it traditionally. As you and I know, what happens then is that oftentimes the skin on the underside of the turkey doesn't crisp properly because it's not having the same access to circulating air, the same access to heat that the top of the turkey is. So, you know, my recommendation is and has been for the past probably 10 years or so is to spatchcock your chicken. Um, Works great for turkey, works great for chicken. You know, essentially cutting out the backbone and laying it flat, roasting it on a baking sheet instead of in a baking pan. Because then you get the same heat and the same air circulation all across the entire surface of the skin. That's another important thing is making sure that you have good circulation. If your oven has a convection setting, you probably want to kick it on for the last you know, 20 minutes or so of cooking just to get that extra crispness if it's not browning properly. Because circulating air heats more effectively than still air. But really, I think, you know, spatchcocking, giving it that even exposure to the heat, um, letting it dry out a little bit overnight, but not too much, is the key to really crisp skin. So the day before, you take it out, dry it off, coarse salt. You put it under the skin, too, or just on top? You can put it under the skin. Um, It'll definitely help the meat stay a little bit juicier if you put it under the skin. Essentially, you know, you're sort of, well, I call it dry brining. Some people call it light curing. Koshering. Koshering, sure. Yeah, you're essentially breaking down some of the protein in that meat so that it doesn't shrink as much while it cooks, uh, retains more moisture. So putting it under the skin in direct contact with the meat can help that. Separating the skin from the meat, you know, in the process of putting the salt under the skin, you're also ending up separating the skin. So that helps a lot as well because it gives channels for rendering fat to drain out. Spatchcocking in that sense also helps because all of the skin drains sort of evenly and there's a lot more channels for that rendering fat to escape. So the turkey's on a rack on a baking sheet in the fridge overnight. Mm -hmm. For those of you who have refrigerators large enough to... (laughs) You can also salt and leave the turkey on a smaller rack before spatchcocking it. You can salt it and leave it whole and then spatchcock it just before roasting it and transfer it to a bigger tray. You know what I do? I put it down in the basement. I have a root cellar. I get one of those big sort of igloo beer carriers and I put a bunch of ice in there and put the turkey (laughs) on it and close it. So and the next day you roast it at what temperature? If you're spatchcocking it, then you roast it hot. 450 degrees. And for something like this, by the way, I wouldn't recommend anything larger than like a 12-pound turkey or so. 10 to 12 pounds is about the largest you want to do. So if you have a huge Thanksgiving, um, you either want to come up with an alternative or cook multiple turkeys. So 450 degrees and it cooks in about 90 minutes or so. A 10-pound turkey will cook in about 90 minutes. Super hot, super fast, extra crispy. So that's Kenji Lopez-Alt with the last word. You just have to promise me, is this the last word on turkey? Or next year, are you going to come up with another method? That's what I want to know. This has been my recommendation for cooking turkey definitely for the last like eight, nine years at least. And I haven't changed it because I haven't found a method that works better. So every year on Milk Street Radio, we'll just rerun the segment. Yeah, (laughs) go for it. (laughs) That's our turkey cooking segment. Kenji, all the best. Sounds like a great method. And uh, maybe I'll give it a shot this year. Thank you. All right. You too. That was J. Kenji Lopez-Alt. He's the author of The Food Lab. 
Better Home Cooking Through Science. He's also the chief culinary advisor for Serious Eats. This week, I interviewed Andrew Ray about his YouTube show, Binging with Babish. And my question is, why would 3 million people want to watch Andrew Ray make Dothraki blood pie? Well, maybe we're just bored with the real world. I grew up with the ordinary. I love Lucy and Bonanza. Today, viewers want the extraordinary Game of Thrones and Westworld. So what if it turns out that the ordinary is, in fact, extraordinary? The simple things of life are, in fact, the universe's most marvelous creations. I think I'll have a nice, ordinary slice of apple pie. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in late, you can always find Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify. Please remember to subscribe to the show. You'll automatically get every episode downloaded to your phone or tablet each week. If you want to learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. You can find each week's recipe, watch the new season of our TV show, subscribe to our magazine, or order our new cookbook, Milk Street Tuesday Nights. We'll be back next week, and thanks, as always, for listening. Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugars. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick and Cindy Lewis. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chubob Crew. Additional music by George Brennell Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Mm-hmm.